We are following the readings in the lectionary. Not really familiar with that term. The lectionary is in the Book of Common Prayer, which is a part of our liturgy and how we connect with the Lord. And over the next, over these four weeks, starting last week, but now in week two, we are actually in the Epistle of James, according to the lectionary. James, or to his contemporaries of the day, would have been known as Jacob or Jacob, was the half brother of Jesus. You may know him as the one who was one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem during the time of, of Acts because he's recorded as being integral and key to many of the decisions that were there. He was one to whom Jesus himself appeared at the resurrection. And so James is, according to church tradition, somebody who lived his entire life after once being a skeptic once being a non-believer in his own brother's mission, lived the remainder of his life as a servant, as an apostle, as one who wanted to see the kingdom come, to see it on earth as it was in heaven. And James has, as, as you read, as we read today, kind of that, that pastor's heart. He calls them brothers and sisters. He's concerned for their well-being. But then there's also a part of James which is a little bit direct, pretty bold. He says what's on his mind. He doesn't pull his punches. He's one who just says it as he sees it. He's not super concerned how people are feeling as they hear this. And so he stands out uh, according, amongst the other apostles who have given us the epistles. Church tradition tells us that he was martyred himself in AD 62. And so the letter that we have in front of us is at least decades old of wisdom and of practical leading a church that is in the already not yet. It is not yet fully the kingdom of God because that will come when Jesus returns. Um, so it's not yet that, but it is already the designated people of God. It is already to be that colony of believers, of people that are formed in Christ. And so James is like, okay, we're going to talk really seriously and directly about what that means. If you look at any of James, and I encourage you to look at the lectionary readings over the course of this, over this month, you'll find that boldness and that directness. Tim Mackey, who's one of the principals of the Bible Project, says the epistle of James is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for all those who want to follow Jesus. And so we've all been warned now, and so let's see what he has to say to us. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And James is highlighting something that maybe the churches that he was writing to, because he's writing to sort of the Jewish Christian diaspora throughout modern-day Turkey and the Mediterranean, maybe they had just sort of not thought that that was a big deal. 
plenty of other sins would have qualified as major offenses. But, but uh, being discriminatory towards certain people to show favoritism, well, that's just sort of the way of the world. And what church doesn't need rich people coming in? I mean, let's face it, we could all use a little more funding. We could all use a little more influence. That's oftentimes how the church of that day was thinking. And let's be candid, that's oftentimes how the church of today continues to think. And so James's words are timely for any body of believers to make sure that we are not eroding the gospel of Jesus Christ through favoritism, through discrimination, through regarding one person as more valuable, more worthwhile than another, based only on external appearances. His imagery couldn't be more stark. The rich man with a ring and fine clothes and the poor man in filthy old clothes. It's one thing to see somebody who's, you know, maybe just didn't get the memo about how we dress around here, but it's another thing to see somebody just completely bereft of of any ability to take care of themselves. That's more the picture that we're getting here. And and behind this is when you see somebody in that way, particularly somebody in, in your church community, we don't know all that has brought them to that point. It's so easy to judge just on base, based on externalities. But we don't know the behind the scenes. Or if you want to use terminology in our current day and age with the pandemic, we don't know the underlying conditions that these people are, have faced or that maybe you have faced or I have faced. We may present a certain way, but the underlying conditions in the pandemic, of course, it's, it means that a person with that has already had to battle some physical issue, some challenge. If, if they beat it, then they did it at a cost. And if they didn't beat it or they're still wrestling with it, it still continues to drain energy. And so the underlying conditions of somebody who is in this place of the poor man that James is describing could be anything. In uh, those that study the, the early church, some think that close to two-thirds were made up of people that were pretty poor, that rich people really don't start to come to later, in the later part of the, the first century and into the second century. But it really is a movement. It starts as a movement of people in the kind of lower echelons of the socioeconomic scale. So poor people would have been part of it, to be sure. And whatever reason they had for getting there is, it it could be any number. It could be just an economic hardship, a setback. It could be some kind of health challenge or change that drained them of finances. It could be a relational change. Jesus says, and the New Testament says, in echoing the Old Testament, look after widows and orphans in their distress. A woman once married now loses her husband and becomes a widow. Or children who had parents who lose them now become orphans. Things can change so quickly. And so we dare not judge and make differences based on what we can see. Because it... Well, there's, there's three reasons really to, to look at that. If you look at James's text, the first reason we don't do that, the first reasons we really need to take this seriously is that it is an affront to God. God is a champion of the poor. He's a champion of those who have underlying conditions of whatever description. And to somehow marginalize them or to not help them see beyond that marginalization that they've suffered in many ways is to continue to be an affront to God. The second thing that when we do these things, it's a loss for the gospel. We know that, that too often people 
Too many people don't press into understanding who God is because of the way Christians have reflected him in their lives. They hear one thing from their Christian friends, but they see something else in action. It's a loss for the gospel. It's an affront to God. It's a loss for the gospel. And most importantly, and sometimes we don't really realize this, when we connect with those that are different circumstantially than we are in whatever that way is, we actually get, God uses that so much in our lives, not only to be you know, a blessing if you happen to help them, and, and James is pretty practical, like if you see somebody in need, don't just say, hey, blessings on you. Feed them, take care of them, give them something. Be practical. So it's not just that that's a blessing. It, honestly, it, it's the time where you can come and hear the blessing of, of some word that they give you that God put on their heart, some service, some ability, some spiritual gift that they have, and they're using that to minister to you. So let just to pack into that a little bit more, push into that, an affront to God, here, here's what James says. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It's not the rich. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? God is the champion of the marginalized. Remember, Jesus, when he gives his Sermon on the Mount in Luke's version, says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke's version of that sermon is more material in its focus than Matthew's is. But we dare not just try to spiritualize that only. There really is a, a socioeconomic context to that. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus' own sense of mission in, in Luke 4, quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. To whom? To the poor. If the poor's situation isn't getting better, at some point you got a question like, how is that really good news? I mean, is it all just later on when I die? That's really the good news? Clearly, that is a huge part of it. But we're in danger of making uh, distinctions, ungodly distinctions amongst fellow Christians if that's all we think of the good news being is something that happens when we die. Proverbs 14.31, if you really want to know the heart of God, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. The poor are very much on God's heart. The poor brother or sister in Christ is very, should be very much on our own heart. We have to be aware of the way that rich people just sort of attract us. They have good things going on in their life. They can afford good food. They look great. This is Psalm 73. Or if you remember the Godspell song, it's all for the best. It says, some men are born to live at ease, doing what they please, Richer than the bees are in honey, never growing old, never feeling cold, pulling pots of gold from thin air. The best in every town, the best at shaking down, the best at making mountains of money. They can't take it with them, but what do they care? They get the center of the meat, cushions on the seat, houses on the street where it's sunny, summers at the sea, winters warm and free, all of this, and we get the rest. But who is the land for, the sun and the sand for? You guessed. It's all for the best. That sense of envy, that sense of looking around us and seeing people who enjoy this kind of life has an attraction because we're human. But it should have a revulsion at some level because we're in Christ. It should, if it's used to separate, if it's used to denigrate, 
if it's used to prevent good news from really becoming good news. We are still stuck in our old self and not putting on the full new self that only Christ brings. So it's an affront to who God is. It's a loss for the gospel. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. When you do that, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. I don't know what gospel advances when people aren't living out the gospel. Like, that's just kind of hard to conceive, really. And so this is James's point. If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, then, then what are you doing? You're loving people that, that can bless you. You're thinking about your relationships from your own self-centered perspective. But if you love them as you love yourself, then you're doing right. You're obeying the second greatest commandment. You'll see, by the way, as we go through the epistle of James, that he is echoing and often referring to the Sermon on the Mount. He is steeped in this. This really is kind of the manifesto for the brother or sister in Christ. This is what the church is about. If you want to know what we're to be about, then it's, it's Matthew 5 through 7 and it's Luke 9. So when we don't do that, it's a loss for the gospel. I don't, some of you guys might know a Christian pastor, blogger, church planner named Kerry Newhoff. Uh, he wrote something recently called, said three things Christians do that non-Christians despise. It's a little harsh, but clearly they don't like. The first thing he listed was being judgmental, making distinctions, showing favoritism, being judgmental, saying to the poor person, poor, poor person you sit there. You're not worthy to be here. The second thing, according to Newhoff, is they're hypocritical. They say one thing, but it's not, they, they say they believe, but what they do shows that they actually don't believe. And the third thing he says is they stink at friendship. That's a different topic. We'll get there maybe at some point. But those first two, to be judgmental, to be hypocritical, these are things that erode the gospel, that compromise it. It says Christians don't have an image problem, but we have an integrity problem. Or at least we should be wise to that. We dare not compromise the gospel, the good news, by, by refusing to show, demonstrate very practically to those that in need and whatever that need is in our, in our midst, what good news really means practically. The final thing is that the, there's a missed opportunity for ourselves, as I mentioned. When we don't approach those that are on the margins those that are sort of hard to love, those with underlying challenges and conditions. Because let's face it, it's harder. It's easier to avoid. It's easier to say, you know, I'm busy. I, I got my friends here. I've got something else that's pressing. All those things are real, and they all come up. It's when they become a, a kind of constant refrain that we really need to challenge. It's when somebody can walk into a fellowship, walk into Holy Trinity, and walk out again in need, and nobody knows. So when we approach them rather than sort of redirect ourselves, we don't miss out on the opportunity. God will find ways. God is using those people very much in our own lives to bless us and to give us grace or prayer or an encouragement or some aspect, some bit of their experience that he knows we need to encourage us, to move us in that closer, closer to him. These are, I think, things that James has for us. There's some remedies, though. How do we, how do we get through this? Because you might be thinking, well, this is so cheerful so far. Uh, but the point is we are designed to be God's um, 
vessels of love and grace and mercy for those around us. And so it's helpful to review what James says, to review the scriptures. Speak and act. He said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if you see somebody who you're not sure whether, you know, what to do, just like ask yourself the test. Do I love them? What would be the, how would I love myself in this situation? Would I hide or would I go close to them? You know, there's a lot in our world and corporate culture these days around bias training. You know, if you just ask this question, hey, am I loving that person as I love myself? That, that would accelerate that whole kind of thought process, and I think, in many ways. Or speak. James also says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So look at the scriptures. Let it reignite each of our hearts. Like, Lord, help me to love my neighbor as I love myself. Help me to ask in the midst of kind of a temptation, either approach or withdraw. Like, Lord, what would I want if I was in their shoes? And then help me to be very practical. Lord, help me not to judge, but help me to be merciful. And when we do that, we are merely extending the very tiny amount of what God has given us in such abundance. He gives us mercy all the time, every day, for all the manifest things that we know we're doing that we shouldn't, and not counting the stuff that we're not really conscious of that we shouldn't be doing. This is part of the you know, growing in Christ. So his mercies are new every morning for what we need. Can we not give just a little bit of that to somebody who comes into our midst and we'll see God work? I, that was driven home to me. It kind of a... I thought an interesting way, but I'll share it with you. Some years ago, I was convicted that I had a really judgmental attitude towards people that were panhandling. You see them, in, I'm in Mountain View, you see them uh, on corners, there's people that claim corners, that's their corner. And I'm like, I, in my mind, because this is sort of the way I was raised, well, why not just get a job that's so much more noble and so much better? And, but I was convicted that I'm just in this judgment zone. Like, where's the mercy in that? And that conviction led to, all right, Lord, I just, I, I want you to free me of this. So I literally got a whole bunch of bills, ones and fives and whatever, and just stuck them in my car. And I said, Lord, if you show me somebody, if I pull up at the red light, I'm just going to roll the window down and give it to them. Like, I'm just, I got to get out of this judgment. I need to be practicing more mercy. I don't know the underlying conditions of why these people are here. And you know, obviously, this isn't somebody in the church, but it illustrates just that, that mercy that should be lavish in our hearts. And so I, I say I'm going to do this one particular day. I was prepared to do this on my way to Whole Foods to shop, if you don't appreciate that irony. Um, so, uh, so I get there, and Whole Foods in Mountain View is it's hard to get into, and it's hard to get out of from a parking perspective. And there's a guy right on the median. I'm like, oh, you are well positioned. He can talk to people coming in, and he can talk to people going out. And, uh, and he's got a sign. And it's not just a sign saying, hey, I need some dollars. Anything would help. God bless. It's like, no, I need money for medical care. Can you help me? I'm like, that's new. I haven't seen that one before. So I go in, and uh, so he was talking to somebody going out. So I go in. I do my shopping. I come back out. He's there. I, I'm stopped at the red light. I'm like, okay. Roll down the window give him some money. He says, thank you. This is what I needed. This is so great. Now I can get, you know, the prescription that I need. And there's a part of me still in kind of hyper-skeptical mode going, okay, you're really working this well, but 
that's okay. I, you know, I'm just being merciful. And he, uh, and he says, get a blood test. Okay, he said, I, I, I got a blood test, just a random one. They found this cancer. And, uh, but I got an operation with that. He, he lifts up his shirt, and he shows this massive incision, this scar. And, he's, and I'm like, wow, this, you're really legit. I mean, you, you do have a medical need. And, uh, and so it, it sort of blessed me to know that I was actually helping him. But what really blessed me afterwards is like, you know, I should get a blood test. I, I don't, I wasn't treating myself really well, medically speaking. I'm like, you know, the doc would, they'd send you the, the pro forma email saying, hey, it's time for your physical. Like, whatever, I feel good. I'll see you in a couple weeks, couple years. Uh, but just that, I'm like, no, I don't want to be a guy, you know, two years from now, lifting up my shirt going, hey, I got a blood test because, you know. So I, I still remember the blessing of that. It actually helped me to be much more attentive, frankly, to my preventative care. Now, I didn't have any of that in mind, and I didn't have any way of knowing what God would be doing just through a simple act of, of obedience. But I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that he used that to show no matter how different somebody's circumstances may be than mine, this man's act of gracious response and encouragement and indeed exhortation is something that blesses me to this day. And so... When we, when we obey the Lord, there's always a mutuality to it. There's always a way that he uses us to bless others, but uses them to bless us in return. And I pray that the, the bold words of James, not to let people hang out in the margins, would go deep into our hearts. I pray that we would be aware of opportunities to see that in action in the days ahead, whether it's on your way to Whole Foods or whether it's uh, somebody you see at the gym or some friend of yours that you haven't talked to in a long time who just seems to be, you know, heavy lifting because of all the uh, pre-existing conditions that they've had, the underlying conditions. I think if we do that, the Lord is glorified. He's not affronted. The gospel is lived out and it's not lost. And we are blessed far more than we would ever bless them. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.